Well, it certainly is good to be together here this morning. I want to just extend my gratitude to you all for making it here. There are probably some in this room who went back and forth this morning. Should I come? Should I not come? Should I go? Should I not go? And you decided to come, and it was not an easy thing for you. There's things going on in your life, and there's challenges going on in your life, but you've chosen to make that effort to be here, and we're grateful. For some of you, you know, you're missing out on NFL Sunday football coverage, and you're missing out. I'm missing out on the Liverpool soccer match. I don't know if anybody knows who Liverpool is, but my Reds are playing this morning, but I'm here. I'm here. I chose to be here. You could be just getting ready for brunch this morning, but you're here, and we're grateful. You could be maybe the place where most of us would want to be, that is sleeping in, but you are here, and we are grateful and want to just express our appreciation for that. Well, we're continuing in on our series that we've titled Co-Creators, Why Work and Rest Matter. And this is going to be our final week in which we focus and concentrate on the first start of that ser- sermon series, that is on the work element of the series. And the next two weeks, we'll be talking about why rest matters. And I'm really looking forward to that component of the series because I've found that the biblical idea of rest is often very different from how we as Americans in the 21st century think about rest. For many of us, we think of rest as, a, as a, simply an absence of our work. Or we think about rest as like the times when we get to go on vacation. But have you ever noticed that when you come back from a vacation, you need a vacation from your vacation, right? That's because we're not doing rest properly in the biblical sense. And so we're going to be wrestling with what does it mean for us to rest in the biblical sense and how does that impact our lives and our work? But you're going to have to come next week for all of that kind of stuff, the next couple of weeks. And it... Hopefully, it shouldn't be too exhausting for you to listen to me in those weeks to come. That would be ironic. But this week, we're still talking about work. If you haven't been with us the past couple of weeks, you can, I'm, I want to just sort of catch us up on where we've been because it's sort of foundational for the things that we're going to be talking about this morning. Two weeks ago, we reflected on the biblical idea that work is good. It seems like an obvious truth, but in our culture and the many ways that sometimes people approach their work, they approach it as though work needs to be avoided, right? We love the break room. We love our days off. We love going on vacation because there's this sense within us that work isn't a good thing, and yet the scriptures teach us that work is actually one of the fundamental things that you were created to do as a person, Just talk to anybody who doesn't have the ability to work anymore, and you'll quickly identify a person who feels a sense of lack, that work is a good thing, and the scriptures insist that it is a good thing. But last week, we talked about the reason why so many of us tend to think that work isn't a good thing, right? Because work is really hard. In the midst of doing our work, there's a certain element of discouragement that we can experience and feel in the midst of our work. Our work can often feel fruitless, like you're just spinning your wheels doing something and there's no progress being made in your work. There are times when our work feels meaningless and you get to the end of a work week, you get to the end of a year and you think to yourself, what is the point of any of this that I am doing? But we turned our attention briefly to the person of Jesus who is the source of who ought to be the source of a lot of our attention, right? And what we discover is that in the life of Jesus, that we embrace the difficulties of our work, the challenges of our work, and in so doing, somehow, God offers our work, or we are able to offer our work as a good gift to people. And this week, I want us to consider how our faith ought to intersect with our work in more practical ways. But before we get there, 
I want to read to you all Psalm 111. I think it'll be on the screen. But I want you to pay special attention to the amount of references and times that the psalmist references God's work in the world. Let's read Psalm 111, verses 1 through 10, I think I have here on my uh, text. The psalmist writes this, Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works giving them the lands of other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever and acted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning, amen. Well, the other day, I had a really interesting conversation with a person who, in an attempt, I think, to encourage me, said something that struck me as a very strange and odd thing. We were discussing pastoral work, that is the work that I'm currently engaged with, and I don't quite remember what led up to this statement, but in the midst of our conversation and dialogue, he said to me, you need to remember That while other people have important jobs, you have the most important job in the world. Your job has eternal implications for people's lives. And I appreciated the sentiment, no doubt. A reminder that my work as a pastor is important work. And let me tell you, it doesn't always feel like it is important work. Trust me, like many of you. It's when I'm sending emails and making phone calls and doing weekly exegesis on things that people are not interested in talking about, like Hebrew and Greek, when I'm setting up church check-in systems for our kids' ministry, and the list goes on and on and on. It doesn't feel like very important work. But the sentiment, though, is, is one that I've heard from several people throughout my years in ministry up to this point in my life. The sentiment is this, that pastoral work is the most important work in the world. It is, after all, God's work. And I do agree that pastoral work and ministry is important work. Trust me, I've committed my entire life to this kind of work. There's no plan B. There is no backup plan. I am all into responding to the call that God has put into my life, fully convinced that this is God's work. But the scriptures illuminate that the reality of God's work in the world isn't confined to religious work or pastoral work. And we need to expand as a church and as followers of Jesus and how we think about God's work in the world. You see, through conversation with Christians throughout the years, my sense is that they often think that how they do their work is the way that faith intersects with their work. The thought usually goes this way for the Christian woman and man in the workplace. I need to be a good example, an exemplary of exemplary character at work. No swearing, right, can't do that. That's not very Christian-like. I need to be in control of my negative emotions. 
I need to do things ethically, even that means if I get passed up for a promotion or a project that I, I work on, and if I get really bold in the workplace, then I might talk to people about Jesus, right? Like, this is the way that faith often, people have thought that faith intersects with their work. And this isn't just true of adults in the workplace, it is true of students in their schools. This is how they think about how faith intersects with their life in school, I've served students for many number of years, and the sentiment is the same. Don't cuss at school, be a nice guy, don't bully people. If you're really strong, maybe you like stand up to somebody who's getting picked on or sit with a kid who is over by themselves at lunchtime, join the Christian clubs on campus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the thought seems to be this, that the work of Christian people is primarily seen through their ethical, the ethical standard by which they go about their work. And let me be clear, this is very important that we do this. Having people in the workplaces that claim to be Christians and followers of Jesus but do not follow the ethical standards of Jesus is very problematic. But the question is this, is this really the only way for us to identify how our faith and our work intersect? Is it only by being a good example of character to our coworkers that our faith has anything to do with our work? Does faith have anything to do with the actual work of accounting? Does faith have anything to do with the actual work of medicine, with the actual work of teaching, with the actual work of homemaking, with the actual work of being a husband or a wife, with the actual work of managing an office? The question to us this morning is what does faith have to do with any of those kinds of work? And I think the scripture suggests That faith has more to do with our work than just being a good example of character in the workplace. But what does faith have to do with our work? I want us to look at two passages this morning that I think are especially helpful in illuminating how our faith ought to intersect and reshape the way that we think about our work this morning. And the first passage I want us to look at is from verse 5 of the psalm that we read It demonstrates this reality that faith sees all work as an extension of God's work. Faith sees all work as an extension of God's work. Verse 5 from our psalm this morning reads this way. He, that is God, provides food for those who fear him. God provides food for those who fear him. How does God? This is the question that we have to ask ourselves. These are the types of questions, actually, when you read the Bible that you should be asking yourselves about the Bible. How does God provide food for those who fear him? It certainly isn't through the magical provision of food in our refrigerators, right? If you stand at your refrigerator door, like, hey, I need some food, God, help a brother out. Boom, open the fridge. No, it's still going to be empty, right? Close it, open it, close it, open it. You get to close it and open it and pray a million times. That fridge is going to stay empty, Unless God did something really crazy. That would be nuts. But like if you open it and there's all a bunch of food and you close it and there's no, that would be crazy. Anyways, all right. Instead, though, this is the thing that we have to, if you're hoping that, yeah, okay, sorry, I'm, I'm lost in my notes. God, instead, has chosen to utilize people as the instruments through which his provision of food is offered to the world. You see, our food comes from the hands of farmers and growers. Much of it was likely picked by farmhands in fields. It was distributed by truckers and shippers. Most of it was purchased by grocers. It was set out in a store and rung up by a clerk for your purchase. And this entire economic system is the means by which God gives people their daily bread. And each part of this food chain 
is the work by which God distributes his good gifts to the world. You see, in, in the very beginning of creation, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates the world and he, and he creates a garden in, in particular where he sets humanity to reside. And in that garden, he offers two people food to eat from the trees and the fields in which they lived. You see, from the very beginning, God's work involves sustaining his creation through the provision of food. And as people are caught up into this kind of work at any level, at any level, they are caught up into godly work, be it growing food as a farmer or stocking it on a shelf in a grocery store. They are caught up in the good work that God is doing to provide food for the world. Now, this doesn't sound like particularly spiritual per se, but it is the vision of the world that we see through the lens of Scripture. This is, in fact, what God had in mind when he created women and men in his image and his likeness in Genesis. You see, the biblical revelation is that God's intention was always to co-labor with humanity to bring about his good purposes in the world. And our failure to see the ways in which we are participating with God's purposes to feed the world is a failure of Christian vision and imagination. We have made God's work and our work far too small and limited to religious activity. God's work is so much more grand than that. You see, God's work, God's world is so much bigger than our religious activity and his work is so much bigger than our religious activity the whole of creation is God's world, and he is working to no end to care for it. God is in the business of creating and sustaining and redeeming creation. And any work that participates in this creating, sustaining, and redeeming of creation is caught up in the very work of God in the world. And the question to you this morning, perhaps, is this. What chain of God's work does your work play a part what chain of God's work does your work play a part? Teachers, school administrators, classroom volunteers, PTA members, and the like, they are caught up in God's work of educating and forming our children, a chain that has the chance of breaking generational poverty in families and leveraging human potential for the good of the world. You are a part of that work if you're involved on any level in education. Physicians, nurses, receptionists, medical insurance workers and the like are caught up in God's work of healing the sick and caring for those who suffer. And if you are caught up in any part of that chain of work in the world, you are part of God's work in the world. Business owners, entrepreneurs can be caught up into any number of chains that they do not merely operate to maximize profits, but to create a service and product that enhances the lives of its customers in the area in which they live. My father-in-law is here, so I have to give him a shout out. If you're involved with real estate or housing or construction or building homes or selling property or anything like that, you are in the work of housing and creating places of refuge on behalf of God in the world. Police officers, lawyers, judges, dare I say legislators, paralegals and the like are caught up in the chain of justice that restrains evil and shapes a fair and good society. And in all of these chains of work, there are architects who design buildings, contractors who build them, and custodians who clean them. All of these kinds of work are caught up in the very work of God. That is, they are all doing God's work. What chain 
is your work a part of? See, regardless of the work you do, it has dignity and worth because it is godly kind of work. And how might seeing your work from that perspective change the way that you approach it on a day-to-day basis? The second passage that I want us to briefly consider this morning comes from Colossians 3, verse 17. It reads this way. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus. In 1964, I think I have a picture of this guy. The jazz saxophonist uh, John Coltrane released an album titled A Love Supreme. The album was one of the most critically acclaimed of his career to date. Some critics have even called it his life's masterpiece. At the time of its release, it far exceeded the sales of his previous albums. Rolling Stone magazine ranks it as one of the top 50 greatest albums ever created, coming in, I think, at number 47. Coltrane's handwritten outline for this album that he composed it is, is in the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. To say the very least, this album, A Love Supreme, which I've listened to for a couple of weeks now, and I would say it's pretty good. I don't know much about jazz, but it's good. Has been really formative in, in shaping um, kind of different artists throughout the generations. In the liner notes of the album, does anybody know what liner notes are? Is anybody old enough to know? For those who, who may not know what a, you never collected CDs or cassette tapes or vinyl records, the liner notes are those notes that are written on the, the cover of the album that your sort of CD or cassette tape or record came in, right? Like the artist would have some sort of explanation about the album, the work, who they wanted to thank, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in the liner notes for A Love Supreme, John Coltrane penned these words. He wrote, during the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which, has led, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through his grace. All praise to God. This album is a humble offering to him an attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. I'm convinced that Coltrane read at some point in his life Colossians 3, verse 17. (laughs) Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through him. His liner notes are an expression of those very same words by Paul. Both the passage and Coltrane's reinterpreting them for his own work have the same implications for us today as they have had for Christians throughout the centuries. They have the same meaning in the first century when Paul wrote them that it did in the last century when Coltrane wrote his liner notes in our century today as we try to live our lives in faithful response to the work of God. And the implication is this, that faith ought to see all work as an opportunity for worship. Faith sees all work as an opportunity for worship. You see, for the Christian woman and man, work is done 
for many of the same reasons as the rest of the world. It makes us feel good, it's meaningful, we do things so that we can provide for our families. It's a means by which we produce something good in our lives. But in addition to these, and perhaps most fundamentally for the Christian woman and man, our work as Christians is ultimately about glorifying God and the way we do our work is itself an act of worship to him. I heard a pastor use this illustration uh, earlier this week. He asked this question. He said, how do pilots glorify God in their work? How do pilots glorify God in their work? Land the plane. (laughs) They land the plane. They land the plane as best they possibly can, considering the conditions when they land. They seek to become excellent at what they do for the sole purpose of glorifying God. Land the plane. You see, Jesus deserves our best. Our pursuit of doing excellent work for the sake of excellence is motivated for the Christian woman and man by the desire to offer Jesus and God our best. And what does it mean for you in your line of work to land the plane? For Coltrane, it was the creation of music. It was the creation of his masterpiece. But as as he states in his liner notes, excellence in our work is an act of worship that can be done in every good endeavor. How can you land the plane with excellence in your work? Is it in running meetings that are actually effective and not a waste of time? Is it being quick and and more effective in your communication? Is it investing extra time to make ordinary work seem more meaningful for those it impacts? You see, as we land the plane in our work with excellence, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices in worship to him who is worthy. These two insights become a powerful source of energy for us in our work. All work is godly and all work is worship, but they become particularly helpful for us when we begin to probe how these fit with our work in our lives. The question is this, if all work is godly work, how is your work part of God's chain of work? Or excuse me, if all work is godly work, how is your work part of a chain of God's work? Do you know how it fits into God's purposes and goodness and work in the world? But if all work can be worship, the question to us this morning is how can you be more excellent in your work as an offering to God? If all work is an act of worship, how can you be more excellent in your work as an offering to God? These are the questions that we have to wrestle with on a daily basis. How am I seeing my work as connecting with God's work and am I doing an excellent job for the sake, not for my own sake, not for my own promotion, not to grow my business, but to glorify God. These two questions, though, are pivotal for us to ask ourselves in the church as well. See, while I do believe that all work is God's work, there's no question that the work of the church is also God's work. Church work is the work that we as a community of people are brought together to do for the sake of God's kingdom. And I wonder how these questions might inform and shape the way that we think about church work. You see, it appears to me that we often forget how church work is often a part of God's work. Don't you, I don't know if you agree with that or not. I think about that all the time. We sometimes forget that church work is God's work. It's not our work. This is 
God's work. You see, God is in the work of creating new life in people in the world. God is in the work of sustaining those who are struggling in the world. God is in the work of redeeming that which is broken in the world. And he has carved out some of us, some of this work to be done by the church. And do we, do we ground our church work in the work of God in the world? Uh, you see, sometimes, let me, let's use a worship service as an example. You see, we, we don't gather for worship each week to simply check off your religious duty checklist item, although that happens for me sometimes, to be fair. I have to be here. Worship, though, is a time of formation and reformation of our hearts and our minds. Do you come into this space each week actually open and expecting to receive something from God that would guide the way that you choose to live your life throughout the week, or do you just come here to sing the songs and criticize the sermon and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? You see, we do not have a youth ministry because that's what churches do. That's kind of like church work. That's what you're supposed to have. We have a youth ministry because young people need to know Jesus. We have a youth ministry because there are kids who are struggling and hurting who need support and love. We have a youth ministry because young people struggle with loneliness, stress, and fear and we long to connect with them, connect them with a community that can be the very tactile encouragement, support, and love of God in their lives. We don't just do it so that we could have it. This past Wednesday, here's an expression of why we do this. We had a number of young people come to our, our Wednesday night programming. And in the midst of some conversations that somebody overheard in our church, we, we were... Uh, we learned that there was uh, a family of the kids whose parent had lost a job and they're struggling financially with money and to the point where there was difficulty in providing food for the family this week. And somebody in our church overheard that conversation and got, we have these like grocery gift cards that we give to people who are in need and gave it to Scott and through sort of conversation, Scott was able to pass that forward to this young gal. And when he gave it to her, she started crying. And I walked away on Wednesday night just reminded that amidst the games and stuff that make youth ministry fun, there are hurting kids in our community. There are kids and families who are in need. And what are we going to do on behalf of God to meet those needs? You see, we do not exist in the middle of Midtown Ventura primarily for what's happening inside of these walls. We exist in the heart of Midtown Ventura because God has called us to proclaim the gospel in this part of the city, to care for the neighbors in this neighborhood, to be mindful for those who have not known Christ yet to come and know Christ now. As much as God's work is happening inside of these walls, there is even more work for us to do outside of these walls. And if we recall whose work we're actually caught up in, we might realize what is actually important in the life of the church. What's actually worth getting upset about in the life of a church if we root all of our work in the work of God in the world? Oh, I got that off my chest. I'm just kidding. But here's the second part. Do we go about our church work as an act of worship to God, truly? 
Your commitment to this community of faith demands that you seek to be the most excellent kind of community member to this church that you can possibly be. Do you come in and out of this place only to leave and reflect on the quality of the music and the sermon, how good the coffee was this week, how good the treats were this week, or do you see yourself as an instrument to be used on Sunday mornings to encourage and listen to other people, to actually be present with them and uplift them with your words? Do you sneak in and out of here without connecting with anybody or do you, do you take the time to increase your knowledge about those who are part of this faith community? Do we do things with excellence? In a month, we're going to be doing our trunk or treat event. It's the first time since I've been here that we're doing something physically, literally outside of the walls of this building. And the question that we have to wrestle with is are we just going to do it just to do it or are we going to do it with excellence as an offering to God? There might be five or 10 neighbors that show up in this place and into our parking lot for Halloween, but is it gonna be the greatest trunk or treat the world has ever seen because we didn't do it just for them, we did it for the glory of God? Are we going to do things in this church with excellence or are we just gonna get through it and kind of, you know, get through another Sunday, get through another week, get through another fall, get through another Christmas? What if we actually looked at the work that we're doing in this place and thought that needs to be excellent because we want to worship God. He is actually worthy of our best. Church, we have been created. You have been created and called by God to join him in his work, to join him in his excellent work in the world. And I encourage you, I beckon you, I call you to offer yourselves in service to him now and all the days of your life. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, your work fills creation. You create and sustain and redeem And we're so grateful that we get to play even a small role in that work. We are humbled by the fact that you have chose to co-labor with us in that work. For some of us, this means a career and a job. For some of us, it means caring for a loved one week in and week out. But we believe and we confess that regardless of the scale of the work that you have for us to do, it all matters because you have infused it with dignity dignity because you are a part of it. And I pray, God, that you would stir within our church in particular this day a desire to do your work in the world. May our conversations be the, the conversations that you want us to have about what is going on here in this place. May we align ourselves for your mission to evangelize and reach our community, to do good work and service to our community this day because that's what you're up to. That's what you've been up to for 2,000 years in the church. And as we do it, stir within us a drive and a power and a passion to do it with excellence. That we would see all that we do as a way of worshiping and honoring and glorifying you And when when that falls short at times, because it will, 
We're so grateful that you're a God who is gracious with us and receives it anyways. You are God and we are your people. Have your way with us, Jesus. Amen. church, as you leave this place and join God in his work in your home, in your neighborhood, in our city, and in your workplace, may you do it with excellence as an act of worship and for his glory, and he will receive it when you do. Go in his peace this week. Amen. Amen.